Romans 13, and I'm going to read all the way down through the end of the chapter, and then because the last couple weeks kind of got us discombobulated, there's going to be a lot to, to do here today. I feel like there's a lot just because of the text, and then there's a lot because I feel pent up. I've been you know, down for the count for weeks. But what I'm going to do is read through not only the end of 14, but we're just going to go plow straight on through like a neighborhood stop sign, the chapter stop at 15, and we're going to go up to verse 7 of the next chapter. So that finish chapter 14 up to verse 7 of 15. And I want to pray for us and ask that God helps us to learn and to grow together. So this is what Scripture says, beginning in the 13th verse of Romans chapter 14. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not... For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whatever, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for time together this morning. We thank you for the body of Christ. I pray that we would honor you and one another in the way that we act this morning. Give us a spirit of unity. May we live in that kind of harmony that has just been commended to us and shown to us. I ask God that all of our concerns, the things that are bigger in our heart and in our minds than they ought to be, that you would shrink them in the light of Jesus. Give us discernment and wisdom so that everything that's swirling around would be put in its proper place. Not an unimportant place, not unseen by you, not totally insignificant, but if and where less than, God, would you rearrange our hearts and our minds and our desires? I pray now that your scripture would be what it is. It would be live, active, cutting. Father, would you give the good gift of your spirit where your children and we're asking you to give the Holy Spirit for pure and peaceable wisdom from above. 
may my words be not only encouraging, but I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd work beneath them to give us life and stability in Jesus. We pray that in his name. Amen. It would be tempting to read the end of Romans, Romans 14 and 15, and start to think about all the chaos and the confusion and the disagreements that are happening and think, I just want to get back to the first 11 chapters. I just want to get back to the good stuff, to the doctrine, to the things that were clear. And it is true that in a sense, for 11 chapters at the beginning of this book, as we looked through this idea of rags to righteous, how is it, how is it and how could it be that God would forgive sinners? There's a sense in which Paul wrote chapters 1 through 11 with a kind of confidence and an assurance that draws us in. And those doctrines, that mercy of God moves him to the point where he almost, he's, he's carried away. There's t- times when a doxologist sprouts up from his words. I've often thought sometimes that I would be most pleasing to God if I taught and was enamored by the Bible in such a way that I didn't care if you were there. And maybe this arrangement where we're looking at each other wasn't there and I could just say like, well, whatever. And then I'm just like this, right? And I'm just, and the same with a worship leader. You know, that experience where you think that the person's leading worship, but really you say to yourself, oh, I can get behind this. That person's that person's worshiping. I'm with them. And there's a sense in which I believe that Paul, as he's writing 1 through 11, we get that sense from him. Everything's clear and certain, and he's encountering mercy and kindness and grace. He's just exulting in it. We also see, though, that this mercy needs to be applied in the real world to real people. And The task of taking that joy and rapturous attention in doctrine and in mercy and in grace and applying it to everyday life, many of us find, is not an easy task. And so, I love the Bible not only for its rapturous moments where Paul's writing and he's almost just like, I don't care what you guys think, and he's just rejoicing, but he also is extremely realistic. He knows that real life won't be so tidy That though you're going to have to, you can still fight for and you need to rejoice in God, that sometimes the rejoicing is an obedient rejoicing, a deep breath kind of rejoicing. And his realism is wonderfully helpful. He knows the church is not going to be easy. It's full of, after all, human beings in a fallen world and in a fallible world. And it reminds me in some sense the way that he views the church. Not only here, we're going to see how he views Corinth, how he deals with Galatia. There's not really a church that's just a pristine example of wonderful Christian unity. And it reminds me of a book that someone handed to me in my first year of marriage. I remember it because of the title. And I thought that the title was, was pessimistic and odd. Someone came up and they're talking about marriage stuff. And they said, yeah, this is really helpful. I just think you probably need this in your first year. And they handed me a book and the book said, what did you expect? And I thought, well, if this isn't some kind of pessimistic hilarity... What'd you expect? Happiness? What'd you expect? Intimacy? What'd you expect? Companionship and friendship? I mean, would you, you know that, you see what I mean? And I was just kind of laughing to myself, like, what a title. This doesn't make me want to read it. The thing is, is that over the course of time, though, I grew to understand the wisdom of a question like that. Because what happens is, is that In the bliss and following the wonderful, astounding, world-stopping covenant of love that's shared in a marriage ceremony, you end up living with a real sinner. That's what happens. And after a while, when disagreements come and you realize, oh man, some things are funny, like, uh, which china do we buy? And then other things are painful and hurtful. 
And you start to realize, oh man, I I thought all of my problems would go away if I just got married, if I just said that. Turns out I'm still a sinner and I keep bumping my head into the wall and I keep hurting the person I love the most. And then more than that, the realization comes up that the person that you're married to, it turns out, you know, you often think, well, I guess Sarah had to marry a sinner like me because there's just no one else in the world. (laughs) Turns out that's all you get to do. And there's some sense, I think, that what happens is we wake up from the mercy of Jesus in 1 through 11, and Paul now looks out at the church and he says, now here's the deal, before you start getting all frustrated and annoyed and impatient with one another, let me ask you a question, what did you expect? This is a fallen world and we're all fallible, and here's what I believe that the church is experiencing. The church in Rome, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and people swarming to a city center, a powerful empire building center, new languages coming to be praising Jesus, and new perspectives and customs and religions all coming under the banner of Lord Jesus. And it turns out that things aren't as easy as they maybe would have thought. And it's as though Paul says to them, well, what did you expect? Because what happens is, is they come out of all of the grace given to them in Jesus, but then they show up and they start to bump into one another. They look at each other's eyes and they say, you believe what now? They go to each other's dinner tables. And they say, you're going to serve me what now? They overlook one another's shoulders and they say, you're reading what now? They accidentally find the Netflix playlist. You're watching what now? More than that, on the flip side, those who are strong in freedom might bump into someone and say, you abstain from what now? What are you, a prude? You don't do that, what? And as they bump into one another, tensions begin to rise to the point where Paul has to look at each other and say, now, here's the thing, don't panic, mercy's not broken We're in a fallen world, and we're in a fallible world, and here's exactly what's going to happen. Jesus must not be maligned by our disagreements, but in the midst of our differences and disagreements, the unity given to us by him is going to be on display in a way that the world's going to say, how in the world are you doing that? And that's the hope. That's the goal. What do you expect? Did you expect to find a place in a church with people united to Jesus only exactly as you want them to act. Did you expect they'd have all the same preferences as you? All the same minor, tiny differences or nuances of doctrine as you? Did you expect that immediately they'd have the maturity that you have? Did you expect that they would be immediately or in an ongoing way pricked of conscience in the same way that you would? The answer, of course, I believe is we should not expect that. And if we learn anything from our New Testaments, it's that this glorious, beautiful, unifying doctrine of Jesus is going to have to be worked out in real time with real human beings. We're going to need patience with one another, and it's going to take the Spirit of God to tie us together in a unity that we'll need to fight for. In some sense, if I put a title over Romans 14 and 15, I would say it's a call to fight And some of you might roll your eyes and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know. I've been around churches. It's a call to fight. But not just to fight. Instead, a call to fight for unity. If I was going to put a little more casual put it on it, I'd say, these are fighting words. Them's is fighting words. 
This is a handbook for what to do when you find yourself fighting. And if we can't figure out what to do in Christ when we're fighting, then we've lost it. And I don't think we really understand what God's up to. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. So as we get started with this, I'm just going to handle each section one after the other. There's going to be a section where we consider what it means to stumble. There's some instructions. If we're going to get this right and keep walking together, we're going to have to figure out and have a kind of idea of stumbling. What does he mean by that? Second, we're going to have to consider and take a look at the the crucial role of conscience in the Christian life. The first bit of fighting instruction that he gives is, Learn how to stumble or what stumbling's about. Second is the role or the crucial nature of conscience. And if we don't have a good idea of both those things, I have in view what would it mean to stumble and how do we avoid it. Second, what is a conscience and how does that work? And then finally, we're going to have to learn what a true welcome is. So we're going to look at a true welcome in the spirit of Jesus. So if you put just one word hangers on it to hook some of our thoughts over the next little while, one word, is, one word at a time is stumble and then conscience and then welcome. And that's what Paul wants us to see as we start looking together. A couple of ground rules before we get into this. Maybe to disabuse us of common assumptions. To get at the heart of what you expect. Let me tell you some things that seem to be an assumption from Paul. First, that coming to know Jesus and being found in him and forgiven for sins does not erase all disagreements over matters of conscience. That because you're a Christian, it does not automatically make you identical to the other person who's become a Christian. And I know that that sounds insane to say out loud because many people think no, duh, but I don't think we often live as though it's a no, duh thing. How many times have you been taken aback, shocked by, unable to abide because you walked in and found someone different than you and you thought to yourself, something's wrong here. I need to turn around and walk out. And Paul says, here's the thing. God seems to know and understand that even in a church all unified by Jesus, there will be disagreements over matters of conscience. And I would say this, that if you work too hard over the course of your life to find a group of people for whom not only do you agree perfectly doctrinally and are you sure that you're in the spirit of God, but also every nuanced area of conscious disagreement or obedience in life you are also perfectly aligned with, you're going to end up with a church of exactly one, you. That's what's going to happen. You're going to have to carve off all the edges until finally you're just carving yourself. And that is a wild goose chase that God does not want us to be on. So first thing, what is the expectation of the early church? Well, if we're going to be anything like the true early church, there's going to be disagreements over matters of conscience. It is not an automatic, it's not an automatic panic button switch doesn't mean something's gone wrong. In fact, I'd say that if we are making room for immaturity or for patience or for the fact that God calls people from everywhere, we should expect and say something's going right. This is amazing. Look who God has gathered together. Something's going right. Second, these disagreements, I want to point this out. These disagreements are not small. In fact, Paul imagines that these matters of disagreement over conscience will be severe enough that they jeopardize the fellowship itself. That there will be a potential for splits. That if you say to someone, like let's say I just said a funny joke. You know the cliche one. Hey, I went to the church meeting. It was an hour and 47 minutes on the color of the carpet. (laughs) You know. Because everyone's like, well, you shouldn't go over the color of the carpet, whatever. Now, here's the reality, though. Sometimes it's not all funny color of the carpet. Sometimes it legitimately is you trying to say, how can I hold on to my soul and abide in fellowship with this person? 
that conscious disagreements actually become severe, that you will hold these things deeply, and there will be challenges where the work of the Spirit needs to dive in because it's right when you're interacting with the brother or sister that God gave you in Christ where you're going to get fomented. A little foamy at the mouth, okay? That's what I'm saying. All of us, whether strong or weak, I mean, I don't know what your issue is that animates you, but my guess is that if you bump into and live honestly in a community long enough, you're going to find something that gets you a little rabid. This is an expectation. Paul isn't bringing this up. He doesn't tell Corinth about this, and he doesn't tell Galatia about this, and he doesn't tell the church in Rome about this because it's a small matter. No, it's serious. Third thing to assume, he says this over and over and over again, is that matters of conscience do in fact have a right answer. And some of you who love certainty in the world in black and white, you're big sigh of relief. Oh, thank you, God, for not being an agent of chaos everywhere in the world. So this is an assumption, though, and I want you to say this. We just got to live with this because some of you think that what I'm trying to say is or what Paul's trying to say by matters of conscience is that everything's relativistic. He is not. In fact, he insists over and over again. Now, here's the deal. Don't fight over what to eat, but everything's fine to eat. Just don't destroy the work of God over something at your table, but put whatever you want on the table because it's fine. He's saying there's a truth there's a right answer. God is not unsure of himself. When we stand before the throne, we'll be in perfect unity and perfect truth. But for now, even though there are right answers to these matters of conscience, just being right is not the end of the matter. Does that make sense? Matters of conscience have a right answer, but just being right is not the end of the matter. That's what Paul's trying to tell us. They have a right answer, but it doesn't matter just to be right. That's not the only thing. And finally, perhaps the most difficult, and I think, though, also the most helpful to remember, when you are in the midst of a church and community that has conscience issues like this, we must remember and realize, this is near the beginning of Romans chapter 14, in a section that Brian helpfully walked through last week, what is often the case is, the issues that are most tempting to sever the fellowship of Christians are those issues that are held tightly because they both want to honor the Lord. And for many of us, here's the way we deal with disagreement. If you come across a Christian who you think to yourself or someone who says they're a Christian, there's a little foreshadowing for you, who says they're a Christian, but they do the unthinkable. Oh, did you hear what they believe about Whatever issue politically, you know what they think about whatever media intake, you know what they think about, they cheer for Bama, you know what they think about, you know what I mean? It's like everything that you could imagine just be unthinkable, which side note, there are two football teams I care about. I was introduced to LSU by marriage, went to a ton of games at Death Valley over the years and, and enjoy them. And then of course, FSU, massive fan. Last night was essentially sort of just like, I can die in peace. It just, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It just like, what a... What a night. What a night. So when you encounter people like this, here's what... That's awesome. Did we just get Siri'd? That's so good. <laughs> hey, Siri, give us a sermon. <clears throat> so here's the, uh, here's, the, here's the easy thing to do. And I believe this is a temptation for all of us. 
Why is it that that person disagrees with me so strongly about something that's so obvious? It's so no-duh. I went to these people's houses. I brought my hand-packed bacon from the idol market. I put it on the table and was going to enjoy it. And they threw me out because they said it was, a, it was a demon bacon. And how could they be so dumb? And you know what the answer is? Often the easy thing to say is, well, they're pagans, of course. Well, they are spies sent by Satan himself to disrupt the fellowship. They believe they're Christians, but they're clearly not. There's no way they have an actual heart for Jesus in there. They're just a pagan. And you know what? This is helpful for a lot of people for two reasons. One, it's easy. It paints everything with a single brush. And then two, it lets them sleep at night because they might not have to deal with the fact that there is a growth and an ongoing patience needed for people who are in Christ. Sometimes conscience issues are an issue because, and get this, you both want to honor Jesus with everything inside of you. And what do you do? What do you do when someone says, we need that instrument up there because I want to honor Jesus with everything inside of me. That's the only way we're going to reach people for the gospel. And someone else says, don't you dare ever put that instrument up there because I want to honor Jesus with everything inside of me and we won't ever, ever reach the world of the faithful gospel if we... And we're just going to have to realize that these realities exist, as far as I can tell, until the Lord Jesus finally and once and for all answers that Lord prayer where his kingdom would come in perfection and his will would be done perfectly. Until that prayer is answered once and for all, if we're in a church here in a fallen and a fallible world, we just have to learn to love one another with these realities. And my sense is this. This is what Paul might be driving at. That it will be exactly in our love for one another in these disagreements where the sweetness of the mercy of God, his kindness, and the gospel that binds us is going to be best put on display. That's the assumption I think he's making here underneath Romans 14 and 15. Now, I said he gives us some fighting rules. Let's just imagine that we're some of those Christians who have a difference of opinions in the room. Let's just imagine. I know it's not, not likely. Let's just imagine. Here's some fighting rules. First, we need to understand what is stumbling. Now, not fighting rules. We're trying to keep people from stumbling. This isn't sweep the leg. I'm not here to teach you how to make someone stumble. Some, most of us know how to do that without any help. The goal here is to figure out what kind of stumbling is in view. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of ideas. The first and foremost is perhaps the most commonly known. is the one that I was taught that this passage meant when I was a kid. And I absolutely think there, is vital, there are vital reasons here. It is possible to cause someone stumble, to stumble by inviting them or cajoling them or influencing them to sin when they otherwise would not want to. It's the kind of peer pressure sort of thing. It may very well be that, you're, that you have it wrong and because you're insisting that you have it right, you will bring others into wrong. You know, peer pressure is a funny thing. I can remember distinctly one moment of witnessing this. In the small town that I grew up in, I don't know if it's just a small town thing or what, but we usually hung out with people because of siblings and whatever, anywhere within about two to three to four years of our age. And one of the first times that I went to what was considered like a party as a kid, I remember just trying to navigate and think, all right, so me and my friends, you know, we made the decision. We don't need any alcohol. We're not going to drink it all. This is dishonoring God. It's against the law. Our parents wouldn't have it, so we're going to be fine. And then I remember I walked into a, a kitchen one time, and there was a table there, and some guys who were older than me, they're all playing cards and hanging out, and, and, they ha and they're drinking. I'm thinking, well, that's interesting. And then I look over, and I see one of my friends who had said and knew all these guys, like, no, no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And legitimately, this dude has them in a full headlock. 
It's like a complete headlock. And he's doing this to him, and he's giving him noogies. And then he's picking up a beer, and he's like, you're going to drink. You're going to drink. And the whole time he's like, no, I'm not. I don't want it, whatever. And I remember just stunned. And I'm thinking, man, that infomercial in second grade was dead honest. Like, that, that's, this is how peer pressure works. Like, they cause, they cause the poor kid to stumble. He legitimately... Now, here's the thing. If that's the case, if you're conniving or if you're tempted into something or if you kind of get a kick out of flaunting your freedom in Jesus or you're gossipy and you're inviting people into it all the time and you're causing people to go that way, don't cause a brother or sister redeemed by the blood of Jesus to stumble. Don't do that. That's legitimate. And I think just because there are more sophisticated ways of stumbling that are here, we shouldn't bury the lead. We shouldn't do that. We should be careful to not cause another to walk in ways that are displeasing to Jesus. However, just because you've never put someone in a headlock doesn't mean that you, need, that you should just give up the idea that you could ever be a stumbling block. The question becomes, well, what does this look like? And let me give you a few other reasons or ways that someone might stumble and that we should be careful to not be a part of it. I believe one of the most common ways is judgmentalism that you can actually be a part of a system because of your insistence on who's strong and who's weak or who's right and who's wrong, because of your insistence on the way you're a part of that system of conversation, you can actually contribute to judgmentalism. He says in verse 13, let us not pass judgment on one another, but rather decide to, put a, to never put a stumbling block. Well, he just said at the beginning of the verse, judgment was the thing to avoid. And if you're not supposed to put a stumbling block is, I think very commonly, what happens is, because of areas of disagreement and conscience, if we flaunt them in front of one another, the most common way we cause someone to stumble is to cause them to become a critical, judgmental, rejecting Christian. I think it's what he's getting at later when he says, don't let what you, record, what you consider to be good be regarded as of evil. It's verse 16. Don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And I think that he's not saying that rhetorically. He means this. Okay, great, you're strong and you're free, but you're flaunting your strength and your freedom in such a way that you're tempting. You're the instigator on the playground with the kids. You're, you just love to get a rile out of that person who has a weak conscience. And if you're the person who's doing that, stop. You're actually contributing to them. You're tempting them to have a spirit of judgmentalism. You actually like for them to think that you might not be a Christian. And you're causing it. This, I believe, is the most common factor of stumbling. In fact, I had a conversation with a, a dear brother at one point who brought this up to me over the maybe three or four months ago. And he wasn't a part of, in his mind, he was not a part of a scene. He thought he saw some other scenario thing going on, but was coming out. So he thought, this person's causing that person to stumble. And he was very concerned for the potential, maybe theoretical stumbling that's happening over there, though he wasn't sure. But all the while, he's bringing me the case with the most hardened, judgmental, mean spirit I've ever heard in my life. And the whole time that I'm sitting there thinking to him, I'm like, oh, there's some stumbling going on here, but I don't think you see who's fallen. You've fallen for the trap. You, you, you see matters of conscience out over there, and you have now solidified in your heart that this person ought to be, oh boy, why I ought to. That is a very real thing. And I think that it is difficult for us sometimes to be honest about our motivations about what we think of strong and weak or right and wrong. Another way that someone could end up stumbling as a part of this, if 
Brothers and sisters in Christ don't know how to fight well, can't hold conversations of substance well, can't love one another through differences well, I fear that someone could stumble to the point where they reject Jesus or his church altogether. These words that Paul uses are stark. He says, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I don't know if you've ever talked to someone like this or been this person yourself, but you really wanted to be a part of a church. You jumped in, you went to the meetings, and then, man, the pettiness just was so overwhelming and exhausting. I would have loved to make a difference. I mean, I wanted to talk about, you know, hope and life and love. That would have been great. But, man, we spent three hours talking about all this stuff that doesn't matter. And actually, you know what? Talking is generous. Just fighting and yelling past each other. And I know many people are simply exhausted by the inability of Christians to ever get along, especially through matters of conscience. And if it is the case that your participation in an ongoing war over opinions leads someone to be exhausted in that way, then I believe you've thrown a stumbling block in front of them. You've asked them to walk with Jesus, but attached a weight to their ankles and needlessly exhaust them with pettiness of preference. I think that's a kind of stumbling that's possible. That's what seems to be in view for Paul. And finally, he does say this, that it's also possible that those with a weak conscience could be partaking in something, and therefore it would be unclean for them. Now, this kind of stumbling is closely associated with the first kind, the headlock sort of stumbling, except in this way, what ends up happening is that someone gets out over their skis. They don't have the faith they don't have the understanding. They haven't been patiently praying through things. They don't, under, they don't see the context around it. They're not sure how it's going to affect their soul. But they feel like if all the cool kids are doing this, I must too. And I believe that this would be a source of stumbling. To insist on a fake, a faux maturity in Christians who have not worked through the issues is to cause someone to stumble, to make them run downhill or ski out over the... I hope that illustration makes sense. And that brings us, of course, to the second area that Paul talks about directly, conscience. And it may be astounding to some of us who just wish there were rules. You know, you can sleep better at night. I, I break the whole world into uh, fine with Jesus because they agree with me here and total pagans. That's easy and clean. We also have a tendency to want every issue to be easy and clean. And Paul says, here's the thing. If you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have to rely on his spirit and continually seek out wisdom more than you thought. Otherwise, how do you make sense of passages like this? I know and am persuaded that nothing is unclean. But if someone is grieved by what you eat, don't eat it. I know that everything is fine, should be received. But don't put something in front of someone to receive if they don't think it is. How do you make sense of a passage like this? For the person who believes it is unclean, it is unclean indeed. What does verse 23 of chapter 14 mean? Except that the conscience is crucial. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What a statement. Whatever does not proceed from conscience or from a faith-motivated conscience is sin. The conscience is a gift of God to be shaped by and to be moved along by the Holy Spirit to allow us to walk in a way that is pleasing to God. One commentator said this, though no one's conscience will be infallible, 
it ought nevertheless to be considered sacrosanct. That your conscience to live in a consistent way where you reject what you believe the Spirit of God is asking of you in honoring of God is a dangerous way to live. That's what Paul's trying to say. And I know that this means we're going to have to slow down sometimes. It means that we're going to have to be humble enough to maybe sometimes get it wrong so that we can, with a clear conscience, say, I want to live rightly. This means that for some people in some circumstances to reject or to receive something, depending on how it will affect or form their soul, is the most holy decision they can make whether or not they come to a, to a clear, concise version of what is right or wrong. And there are many, many moments where moral code following people, religious burying, barrier kind of building people, and I mean religious in the negative sense. There's beautiful religion in the world too, the habits that form us. But the kind that says, I made everything simple for you, here's the handbook See section 17, part C, if you want to know exactly what to do. I don't believe they've understood the teaching of Scripture. It's a rare thing, though, for someone to be honest. It takes love of one another to be vulnerable enough to describe your conscience. I believe that what Paul is teaching is this. It is crucial for an individual Christian to guard and protect their conscience, but also... It is crucial for an individual Christian to recognize they are not an island unto themselves and they have a responsibility to help guard and protect the consciences of those around them. You have a responsibility to be led by the Spirit of God in your conscience to walk honorably with God. And you have a responsibility to take into account the consciences of the people around you. And if and when someone says to you, here's the thing, I'm just going to be, if you don't think this is God-wrought humility, I don't know what is. If someone says, here's the thing, I am not judging what's taking place here. You might be free to do that. It's totally fine. I'm just telling you, for me right now, I cannot do this. I don't have an Instagram account because every time I put something on there, the next seven days, my ego inflates to the size of like a, a blimp or something, <laughs> something big. It's It's big. My, I am so narcissistic, my entire identity would be whether or not people said yay or ignored it. I just cannot. I'm not telling you that I'm judging you for this, but I cannot. Please help me in this. If someone says to you, look, I know you enjoy a glass of wine and you have an Italian grandmother and the whole thing and that's totally fine, but I'm just telling you, I have connotations in my life and I have temptations here. I don't think I can be around it or do that. Then you know what a mature Christian says is, not this, what are you, dumb or something? Don't you know there's freedom? Aren't you mature in Jesus? You know what that would be? That would be to be wrongly right. And Paul says that your responsibility in that moment is to joyfully, if you're truly free, then you can joyfully give something up just as well as you can receive it. But the people who say, I'm free, therefore I must always and every single time partake in this kind of thing, I would say, no, you're just enslaved a different way. You, you just, you can't give up your own preference or defer to anyone. That's a kind of slavery. I'm sorry. So Paul says you have the responsibility to love and to guard the conscience of those around you. So you listen to someone. It's a harmony built on listening well to the voices around you. 
and then adding to the song, not trampling their wrong interpretation. That's why I love it. It goes all the way back to the beginning of 14. It's like, as for the one who's weak, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Don't do the old bait and switch. Don't invite them in under the false pretense when really all you want to do is show them how silly they are. But guard and protect their conscience the same way that you would yours, knowing that an honor and a desiring, a desiring to honor Jesus is one of the most precious things that God has given us by his spirit. This, I believe, is what is called for in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We have to be comfortable with needing and relying on the wisdom of God in a way that won't be easy with a set of rules. Here's what he said to the church in Corinth. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go. Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. And I don't mean your conscience, but his. Do you see what Paul just did? He put an obligation on the person who's going to partake to care for the conscience of his fellow partaker. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And give no offense. The Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. We'll stop there. I think he means no undue offense. The gospel, of course, is in many ways offensive. And I believe now that what Paul's getting at, he's going to wrap it around here to the end of verse 7 in chapter 15, straight back to 14, verse 1. Welcome one another. You will welcome one another and fight well, fight through things well to a welcome if you've understood stumbling, if you care for your own and others' conscience, then that will allow you to remember and to see that Jesus has welcomed you. Therefore, the motivation for us is to welcome one another. That means simply this. Christians must have a concern for our welcome of one another that is just as passionate and just as rabid as we have a concern for rightness in any one area of doctrine. Doctrines do have right and wrong. I mean, as a joke, I mean, it's okay. Some of y'all are messed up. I mean, is what he'd say. I'm messed up, right? I mean, doctrines have right and wrong, but the spirit of Jesus in us seeks a welcome that is as important and is being driven towards just as much as being right. And for many people, they take no stock of how they are right or wrong simply if they can prove that they are right or wrong. Now, here's a couple of false welcomes that I've seen commonly. The first is, upon discovering that we will have differences, some churches say, we're going to build a unity on never talking about anything important. Can you see the temptation there? Thanksgiving dinner, anyone? The idea might be, oh, let me tell you what a welcome is built on. It's a built on a shallow, substanceless, let's never bring up anything important. That is not the unity that Paul's talking about. I love that he just throws the elephant out in the room. And he would, he would eat it, it sounds like, if, if someone offered it to him. He says, no, 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 no. We're not going to have the kind of fake unity where we don't bring it up. Let's talk about this. Are you concerned about X, Y, and Z? Let's talk about this. How's your heart? How's your conscience? 
A true unity is built not on ignoring or never talking about substantive things or, not, or pretending somehow there's not a right or wrong. No, real unity is going to be built on, no, we're going to go and fight this out again. Let's talk about it. Let's bring it up. It's just not going to be the litmus test for belonging. So the welcome that Jesus gives is not shallow based on don't bring up anything important. Secondarily, the welcome that Jesus has acknowledges the differences in one another seeks the maturity that sets aside preferences and wants to defer to those around us. I've actually been amazed at the number of times Christians have done these kinds of things. A false unity built on nothing substantive ever talked about. Or secondarily, a compromised disunity that parades around as unity. I was a part of a church for a number of years. And when I say part of a church, I was beginning to pastor and, and leading in this, we had three different styles of worship on Sunday mornings, three worship services. If you wanted to sing entirely and only hymns with an organ, with a, a, a very robust idea of doctrine in those hymns, you could come to the early service, and that was the entirety of the worship service. If you wanted to come to the next service, this was openly described. It was a worship service that had a good mix of hymns, a couple of those a little bit suspect contemporary songs, and then maybe an espresso shot given to the worship guy after the first service. And then, if you were really off the rails and you just threw all everything out the window and you just wanted to come to the totally modern service, you could come to the last one. And I remember at a certain point, someone describing what a wonderful show of unity this was for us. And I couldn't help but think the entirety of the time, or... I suppose, depending on your perspective, this was a fantastic show of disunity. Because the reality is, is that people did not dare to ever go across the lines of worship service times. What we were proclaiming to the world or anyone who would look in is that we have a deep and an abiding unity in Jesus unless you play a song I kind of don't like. I said it like this, and this pleased me in a wordplay. Unity in Jesus is forever and unbreakable, says the Apostle Paul. But standing and worshiping to the same songs is impossible, says Les Paul. It is legitimately as though these Christians said this, I hope everyone sees our beautiful unity in Jesus, and I'm with you through thick and thin. Do you understand what we tell people? We have a unity that's tied up in Jesus. He's going to carry us through the grave through the dirt and back up again, all the way to the throne room. That's how tight we're together. Just don't electrify that instrument. Then I'm out. Or for those who need electrified instruments, you better not worship with an organ. That's boring. Legitimately, oh no, you might have to give up your preference of the way that you rock out with Jesus to love saints that have gone before us. It astounds me how often Christians have been content to display to the world a compromised kind of disunity with a fake facade of unity thrown over the top because we don't know how to fight through differences of conscience. But Paul says, let me tell you, there's a pattern here. If you want to see someone who gave up himself and didn't insist on freedom or preference for the good of others, do you remember what this is all about? Do you remember Jesus? In fact, I think what happens is in Scripture, we see a couple good pictures of, of models to go after. We're either going to follow Jesus or follow our own preference, and we even have a figure for that. Third John, 
John, who's the disciple that Jesus loved, seems like the sweetest guy ever. Just think of the old nice guy who just loves. He's writing in 3 John, verse 9. He says, don't be diatrophies. 3 John says this, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. I don't know the ancestors of Diotrephes, but God bless them with their forefather remembered in Scripture like this. This is a tough, tough place to be. I love how it's in our Bibles. John, John says, look, Diotrephes, if you continue to be so self-serving, so individualistic that you reject all authority around you, and more than that, you insist on being this narrow and refusing people around, I'm going to come and tell everybody about it. And I love how he brought receipts. Like, here it is. He told everybody about it. Now, you may not operate in such a way that you'll ever be in the pages of Scripture. God help us. But there's a spirit here. A spirit of me first. A spirit of my preference. A spirit of you can't tell me what to do. I'm right that I believe is persisting and needs to be put to death by the power of the Spirit. We contrast this with Jesus, who has given himself for our good. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes this Jesus and gives them a better vision, a better idea. Starting in the third verse, it says this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus was emptying himself, when he was not insisting on his freedom, when he was not commanding angels, when he was not condemning with fireballs from his eyes all of those who were mocking him, but instead saying, forgive them, they don't know what they do. He was building unity. He was gathering up those who were very different than him, not only different, but had rejected him. And he was not weak nor wrong. He was rightly right. The whole while the world mocked and saw Jesus saying, in his weakness, he's deferring, he's giving up. Jesus was, in fact, gathering he was gathering strength so that one day his deference and one day his humility would make him Lord of all. Would it be that God gives us this gift of the Spirit to be humble enough to say whether I am strong or weak, whether I am right or wrong in this matter and I'm fallible, whatever it is, I want to do so in a right spirit that does not aid disunity, 
but calls us together in Christ.